U.S. Congress says go to the pro and no to the O. Diesel fuel apparently has a helium additive. And don't look now, but Mayor Pete is going to fix your potholes. This is Jaws Bites, and I'm Chris Joslin. coming to you directly from ilevellogistics.com, www.ilevellogistics.com, uh, with another uh, edition of Jaws Bites. This one, as I prefaced a little earlier, has kind of three quick things I want to talk about that are, you know, there's so much going on in the industry out there today, and, and, and frankly, above and beyond our industry. It's Supply chain is becoming more like hmm, reality chain, really, where it brings in pieces of politics, life, international transportation, uh, product uh, purchase and, and distribution and just the whole facet of things that is highly complex but at the same time has a, a thin line that runs through all of it that we can address today and, and bring a clearer understanding. One of the main goals, as I said, is to mainstream transportation logistics supply chain and give anybody that wants to watch a podcast or, or listen to information like this, a better understanding of how these things affect you on a day-to-day basis. So we'll get right into it. Because as I said earlier, diesel fuel seems, it seems to have a helium as an additive these days. I mean, it's getting out of control, uh, gas prices in general are. I mean, legitimately, the increase in overall U.S. average diesel fuel price year over year from first week in March of this week is about 46 cents on the gallon. That's from a national average of about 270 something up to about 319 now. Uh, by my calculation, that's about 17% increase year over year, which is, is you know, our fuel is volatile in general. COVID has certainly has affected that. But there's a lot of things downstream that have, have caused that to happen. And if you're watching this in somewhere other than California, thank your lucky stars you're not out here because. The baseline average in the United States today is still far less than it was a year ago in California. So I guess it depends geographically where you're at as to how you're affected. But when things go up like this, when prices go up in 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 the United States or things like fuel, there's usually a lot of reason behind that. Sometimes there's taxes. Sometimes it's just overall usage of a product, supply and demand issues in general. And in, in this case, it can be everything from you know new legislation going into effect that will broaden directional um, investments into green technologies, things like that. And it's also, you know, pipelines going away, all kinds of of issues that create uh, workforce moving around to different industries. Ultimately, though, one of the things that jumped out at me in an article I read was that it's anytime price goes up like this, it drives other initiatives. Because the gap between relatively new uh, technologies and current sustainable baseline technologies like fuel, the difference between doing them and not doing that is that marginal difference between cost and what you can sell something for. Uh, any industry looks at that thing, going from you know, a fuel combustion to an electric engine 
has to do not with technologies alone, but with also the ability to narrow the gap, oftentimes with governmental subsidies, between the cost of producing those new technologies. So renewable diesel is, is one of those issues, and, the, and Oregon's come up with a, a new bill that's going through the assembly up there right now. It's affecting the top three populous counties in that state right now, basically saying there's no, not going to be any more uh, petro, petroleum-based diesel uh, to be phased in over the next uh, seven and a half years to be completely gone in that, in that state over that period of time, and by, actually by January 1st of 2025, to have Washington, um, um, Clackamas, and Multnomah County, which accounts for 1.8 million of the 4.2 million people in that state, it, it will have to be using renewable diesels by that point. Now, there's, there's a lot of struggles around trying to, to move to that technology. As I mentioned before, having the differential between the cost for, for creating something like that and selling it, uh, the, the, near, the higher the regular diesel fuel goes, the more ability for something to be transitioned to that. But there's, there's, there's a lot going on that says that's going to be very difficult to have happen. It's about 43% of the population up there is what we're talking about that's going to be affected directly by this by, the, with, by 2025 and then 100% of the population beyond it if, it if it passes and goes through. But the, um, it's, this type of fuel is largely, de- I don't get into the mechanics and the, the biochemistry of how this happens, but it largely depends on feedstock, which is, you know, a, um, you know, animal fats, vegetable oils, a lot of the stuff that the restaurant industry throws away can be put into a plant and converted through a process into renewable diesel energy which has a hugely more effective carbon footprint than the process used to create diesel, petrodiesel fuels today. So there's a big initiative to drive toward that. The problem is supply. Uh, if you think about the last year, what industry, other than travel perhaps, what industry is affected the most by this pandemic? And it would be the restaurant, the entertainment industry in that, in that fashion. So there's a supply problem that's low even though that differential between the cost of the two different diesel products is is changing rapidly. So we'll see where this goes. I mean, you never know, but a, a lot of times with these, the agenda of these politicians is to push a bill that maybe is too far ahead of its time, that may need a longer time to transition into something, but you're going to see this drive coming. I, I think it's inevitable that you're going to see some of this, this coming. It may not pass yet, but it will push the ration the ratio, I should say, of the types of diesel fuels that come out there. Right now, R20 is about the best thing that you could ask for in terms of this type of fuel. That simply means a mixture of 20% renewable diesel with 80% of the petroleum-based diesel. And that might be the compromise interim step that, you know, legislation will take in places like Oregon and others. You know, ultimately, this impacts the industry hugely. The you know railroad industry, the trucking industry in in, in uh, you know states like Oregon and Washington. Heck, the it affects all the way down to people. You know, large equipment machinery. There's a lot of stuff that uses diesel to run. So while these programs 
you could look at them a number of different ways, depending on your point of view. And, you know, certainly I think that we, we continue to, to move toward these types of technologies, these types of new efficiencies, though regular diesel and the engines that they run through are much more efficient than they were even 10 years ago. And the bottom line with this is, is that is it better to rush into these things or is it better to, to have things evolve in a more methodical manner? I'm of the latter camp, but we'll see how things go. It's going to be very interesting to see the next steps other states take, like California, all, all the West Coast states, so then the eastern, eastern um, seaboard as well. So we'll see that where that kind of stuff goes. But that's, that's the first thing I wanted to just chat about. The second and probably the number one thing that jumped out at me over this last week is the passing in the House of Representatives, the PRO, or PRO Act, which stands for Protecting the Right to Organize. Now, the definition itself can lead to all kinds of uh, views of what that might be about. And there's a lot in, in all these bills, more than I'm going to sit down and read in any, any one time. But you can get the highlights. You can go online and you can, you know, get with, you know, different responsible parties like uh, a great thing would be the American Action Forum. And you can see, you know, kind of a summary rundown from a pretty succinct scientific uh, legitimate viewpoint that shows this is what's in something. This is kind of the research that says how things are going to be impacted, etc. But the PRO Act really, you know, the, the union leaders are touting this as probably the most significant thing to empower workers since since the Great Depression, since the era after the Great Depression, where a lot of things were were changed to enable workers to unionize, and that's really the goal here of this is to allow unions to to have a better foothold into places that they don't currently have that. One of those main things, you know, the, the Democrats in in Congress, and this thing passed by. 225 to uh, 206 was the number. Now, almost all on party lines. So there was five GOP members uh, that voted for it, and one Democrat that voted against it as well. So it wasn't completely bipartisan, or it wasn't completely partisan, but it was close. And this would also require 60 votes in the Senate to pass at this point, which is kind of a, a tough thing to, to a hurdle to jump because this. This or something very, very similar to it has been through several Congresses now and has been defeated by the fact that there was always a different party in control of one of the branches. And there's huge costs and price tags that revolve around this thing. But the Democrats have suggested that this is, you know, this really uh, gives the ability to have anti-union activities fined by the uh, National Labor Act. Um, it gives it, it, another thing it does is it takes the, the 20, 28 states right now that have a right to work legislation involved with their statewide um, um, employment contracts, etc. And it backs that out. Right now, a right to work legislation will give a worker a choice to you know, give them a choice to join a union without fear of losing a job or even being forced to pay union dues. That protection will be gone with legislation like this. A, another uh, 
thing that would occur is that there would be a joint employment ramification. This is a very interesting part of it because joint employment means that if you are a contractor that is like this would be like a building contractor versus a subcontractor or a trucking company with a owner operator which is where I'm going with this entirely anyway. The relationship has always been one of um, mutual consent to do some service and part of that is that that if you had a direct relationship, if you had a, a direct um, authority over, if you will, a contractor, then they'd be viewed more as an employee. This, this act basically says you're an employee unless you can prove you're not. It doesn't say you're not unless you can prove you are. It's the opposite, which goes to that AB test, AB5 ABC test-like scenario, and there's variations to this test in different parts of the country. But basically, there are three elements to that. And using the California, which has the most um, press behind it over the course of the last few years, AB5 got passed in the, in the law in California, and then it had a lot of carve-outs put into it for different types of industries. And there's been additional uh, assembly bills to put more carve-outs in there, but there was actually something on the ballot this last fall. It was Prop 22 that that the gig economy people, Lyft and Uber and those guys, put just ton and ton of money, more money into it than any other prop, I think, than there there ever has been. And it succeeded by, it was passed 60% almost, if I, if I remember correctly, which is significant in a, in a blue state to have something that is so aggressively employee-centric, if you if you look at it, not be a, not go into law or have a different carve-out for those gig economy folks. So, you know, the argument is really, do you give more power to the folks, the union folks, that a lot of people believe helped form this country and its ability to, to get higher wages and, and health benefits and protections? And there's certainly a place for all that. Or do you believe more of the individual worker freedom aspect of it and, and the, um, the ability to choose between organizing and not and be able to... So that's, that's the kind of the argument you're looking at. But the ABC test, get back to that for a minute, really comes down to just a, a couple of quick things. So the bottom line is, is the PRO Act assumes that all workers are employees unless they can meet the three criteria that the ABC test to identify themselves as independent contractors. They must meet all three. You can't not meet one of them and be anything other than employee. So you're an employee first, and if you can meet all three of these, then you can be deem yourself a contractor. So the three are this. Um, the worker is free from the control and direction of the hiring entity in connection with this performance. So in other words, if I'm hiring you as a contractor, as an owner-operator, are you free from my direction for what you to do. Now, I tender you below, but are you free to say yes, no, or maybe? Are, are, or am I directing you as a company, hey, if you want to do business with me, you must take this and pick up that, etc. That would be an employee pressure, if you will, to, to do whatever I'm asking you to do. But if, I'm, if I simply put up a load board and say you can take it or leave it, it doesn't matter to me, then you're independent of my direction, in a way, if you understand that. So the, the second one is the worker performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. 
This is the one that gets everybody in a big mess. Because in, in the trucking business in particular, a trucking company hires an owner-operator. Okay? They're a trucking company and they're hiring a truck driver. Seems to me it's not outside of the normal course of business that that hiring entity does. So almost everyone would get tossed out under that and be directed to be an employee or be treated like one. And there's a ton of ramifications we won't get into today about how um, you know, how a contractor would be treated from an insurance level, from a protection level, from a, 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 a per mile or per trip kind of basis. There's, there's a lot of things about that. But that B prong is the one that hangs everybody up. Because it used to be there was another test called a Bolero test, which was a little bit looser, a little bit more open to that entrepreneurial contractor, owner-operator mentality. This is not that. Okay, and then the third is is the the worker is customarily engaged as an independent, independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature as as the work performed. That one's not so hard to get by because that is you know are you is the owner-operator engaged in an independently established trade, completely different from the other. So those are those are the kind of the three things to look at real quick. And again, the B prong is the one that that, that everybody kind of gets gets hung up on. So we've talked about the joint employment ramification. We've talked about the right to work states. There are 28 of them right now that would still have right to work in some degree, but this portion of the right to work, that protectionism for the individual worker to either choose to be in a union or not to pay union dues would be gone. Um, and, and, you know, the fact is it's going to be difficult for this thing to get through the Senate. Just very difficult because of the 60-vote rule. Though I know that the Senate and the Congress keep going back and forth about different rules to try to make it more of a uh, majority rule kind of scenario. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I don't think, not for the sake of this bill, but for the sake of general checks and balances in Washington, I think it's more important to have those safety nets. Um, and I know that sometimes that grinds everybody and stalls things out that you think should go through, but ultimately we still make progress, albeit slower. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the uh, American Action Forum, I mentioned them earlier, but they did a lot of research on this, and, and uh, along with the uh, um, Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is does a great job putting white papers together and graphs and charts and almost anything you can imagine in terms of labor, and this is drilled right into the center of labor. But they they did an independent survey, the the, the BLS that is, and they showed that fewer than fewer than one of ten of contractors that were uh, put under a survey wanted anything to do with regular employment at all. So that's kind of the first stage in, in, in kind of looking at this. And the research from the AAF basically suggests that 15 to 50, that's a big spread, 35%, but a 15 to 50% of all contractors would have to be reclassified under this PRO Act, PRO Act. So that's, that's a difficult pill to swallow and, and it also gives huge ramifications for GDP in the United States. There's huge costs involved. And again, the research from AAF showed that it could affect up to 8.5% of GDP. That's a huge number, huge number. Uh, 
Now, the third and final thing I wanted just to address real quick is infrastructure in general. I made the joke about Mayor Pete and the potholes, and if you watch the political environment from the last couple of years, you, you saw things about his time in South Bend and filling potholes in, in South Bend, Indiana, where he was mayor. So that's why I brought that up. But it's really he and the Biden administration and Nancy Pelosi and the rest in the House that are coming up with a infrastructure bill. Last year, a million or $1.5 trillion bill was passed by the House and then stalled out in, in the Senate because of, the, the again, the checks and balances that are there and a lot of the other stuff that is put into any of these bills that usually has nothing to do with what a, a layman would look at, you and I would look at as, as part of a normal infrastructure bill. When I think infrastructure, I think of technological infrastructures, I think of energy infrastructures, and I think of roads and rails infrastructures is what I think of. And that that's where, as a transportation provider, as a logistics person, 3PL person over the course of my career, I look forward to better bridges, better roads, less potholes, all that kind of thing. So that, that's, that's kind of where we're starting to go. And, we, and I see a lot of people are looking at something that might be up to a $2 trillion effort. Now, that's right on top of a $1.9 trillion bailout, uh, bailout, personal bailout, COVID bill that, that just was passed and that is going to issue those $1,400 checks and everything that's going on there. It's, it's tough to imagine. There's two problems that I see with it. Now, there's probably a lot more than that, but the two ones that come up are both green. One is greenbacks. You know, somehow or another, you can't just keep printing money. You, there's not enough paper in the world to keep printing as much money as our government decides to, to put out there for all these projects, though I'm not an economist, and I know that there are a lot of philosophies that, that, that um, kind of look at the way we're doing things as far as spending and kind of worry about the ramifications of it later and, and believe that the GDP uh, gains and the, the worldwide view of our currency and everything else is not going to be affected enough to really harm the situation by adding that much money to the system. But the other part is to find the money somewhere, right? So different war chests that have been put together over the years by both political parties to contribute to this and ultimately a form of tax. Some kind of tax, maybe not the thing that's called a tax from our industry, it goes back to the first thing I talked about, diesel fuel. You know, about 21 cents on the uh, the dollar is federal taxes on a gallon of fuel, a gallon of diesel fuel right now. I suspect that may go up. And it does two things as far as what we've talked about here today. And, and that, again, is moving the gap between renewables something that there's a great deal of value in our society today for, and certainly in our politics today, to drive toward renewables. Again, that gap, if they raise taxes on it, the gap between renewables in the current um, method of technology of diesel narrows, thus allowing something to, to be created, which has jobs involved, etc. So there's, there's this big dance, there's this big balance that's always going on. We can't talk about all the different degrees of that. I don't know all the different degrees of balance that need to be looked at or evaluated to determine what's right or what's wrong. My job isn't to tell you what's right or what's wrong. My job is to just kind of convey my thoughts on stuff for the day that you may be interested in and to initiate some discussions on this. And you know, this, this discussion overall came from a, um, 
a comment that I got. It was actually outside of the eye level thing. I got a had it got an email exchange with somebody that I was doing an, an RFP for in, about uh, separating or adding fuel costs into the the quotes that I was creating on the brokerage side of one of the businesses I have, and they're, they want to make their budgets easier, make th- uh, something looked at that can be just uh, static so that they can budget for their next four quarters based on transportation um, that includes fuel. And I was pushing back very hard on that because of the volatility that there is with fuel surcharges these days. And it's not going away anytime soon. I think the first fuel charges I saw in on the rail, the intermodal marketing side of things when I was with Hub Group years ago was in the mid-90s. And I remember thinking at the time that this was going to be a short-term kind of scenario. Well, that was 30 years ago, nearly, nearly 30 years ago that that occurred. So... It, it, those kind of things are here to stay. The, the looking at data and breaking things into pieces is, is more and more important today. And I had basically a, I don't know how many exchange email conversation with that client about this. But it, it's, it's the industry in general has got to look at all the details that are out there and apply them in appropriate transactional ways. It's, it's too difficult to blend them all into one big um, receivable or payable, I should say, um, either way, for, for those that are, that are looking to grow in this industry. So again, thank you today for, for dropping in. Like this on the, on the site, like it on the, the YouTube, see it on the social media platforms, come to ilevellogistics.com be part of the conversation and we're, we're going to have some some real good interviews soon the, the fuel thing is kind of something that's been you know on the top of my brain for a while we're going to have a, a technology expert come on up with not a fuel additive guy but a an engineered solution guy real soon so i'm teasing that out there <clears throat> there's a ton of great articles on our road scholar drop down that that have data bytes and, and indices on different things. We do polls at different times. Come evaluate it. Come be part of that, that community and help us grow it so that we can bring more and better content to you all the time. Thank you very much, and we'll be seeing you with another Jaws Bite in the very, very near future. Take care.